0: The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As you can see, this is the second of our two part seat at the table episode on the life and career of Albert Gallatin. Before we dive in though, I do have a couple of housekeeping items slash disclaimers to share with you. First, unfortunately, we did experience some technical difficulties while recording this episode. I, my special guest for this episode, Andy of the History of Africa podcast, recorded the day after Hurricane Ian came through the Carolinas in September 2022 and my internet connection dropped twice during the call. This, in part, contributed to problem number two, which was that my guest only had limited time remaining for the recording. As I try to be respectful of my guest's time, in the post-cabinet career section, with the guest, I sped through and gave an abbreviated version hitting on the highlights. However, as you'll see in this episode, there is so very much to talk about when it comes to Albert Gallatin's career after leaving the Treasury Department that... Out of respect for you, the audience, I didn't want you to miss that experience. After talking out the situation with my amazing and ever-supportive husband, we came up with an idea to give everyone the best of both worlds. The majority of this episode will just be me relaying information to you, rather than a back-and-forth conversation with the guest, as is usual on the Seat at the Table special series. My guests for this episode will return at the end, however, for a discussion about Gallatin's career and legacy. I take full responsibility for any audio glitches and cannot thank Andy enough for bearing with me through them. I try to offer these guest spots to fellow podcasters so that all of you can learn about the amazing work that they do, but I also realize that it's a time commitment on their part in agreeing to appear. I do what I can to make the recording session run smoothly, but sometimes even the best laid plans go awry. Thus, I thank Andy, as well as all of you, for your grace, and I hope this proves to be an insightful and informative episode for all. And once you're done with this episode, be sure to go and check out the History of Africa podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found. As usual, I'll be sharing information about Andy's podcast on the social media for the podcast around the time of this release. With all of that said, let's get to our regularly scheduled program. Though his tenure at the Treasury Department was coming to an end, Gallatin would finally get a chance to engage in diplomacy as the Senate confirmed his second appointment as a peace commissioner. Though it would take some time for him to learn of his appointment, Gallatin did assume that he had been named to the commission and his fellow commissioner, Henry Clay, confirmed it upon his arrival in London. When it became clear that the British would not accept Tsar Alexander's mediation offer, Gallatin had traveled first to Amsterdam before proceeding to London, where he met with the banker Alexander Baring, who he had been corresponding with for a bit, and who introduced Gallatin to some of the movers and shakers in the British capital. The full American commission consisted of Gallatin, Clay, Adams, Baird, and the new U.S. minister to Sweden, Jonathan Russell. The British would soon appoint their own commissioners, and it was decided that the negotiations should happen in Ghent, in what was then part of the United Netherlands, but is now Belgium. Negotiations began on August 8, 1814, and would go back and forth for months. Finally, though, the commissioners would agree to a treaty built on the basis of status quo antebellum, or returning everything to as it was before the war, no territory ceded, and no prior claims given up by either side the British and American Peace commissioners signed what has come to be known as the Treaty of Ghent on December twenty-fourth, 1814. After work on the treaty was completed, Gallatin and his son James traveled to Geneva, the first time the diplomat had been back to his hometown in 35 years. They spent a month there visiting with family before traveling to Paris, then to London to negotiate a commercial treaty. With the signing of this treaty on July third, 1815, Gallatin was free to return home, and he arrived in New York on September 1st.
1: Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of.
0: Gallatin would not remain in the U.S. for long, though, for he had been appointed as the new U.S. Minister to France. Initially, Gallatin was undecided as to whether he would accept the post, and indeed, Gallatin had another offer to consider. The wealthy merchant John Jacob Astor had offered Gallatin the opportunity to go into business with him. Indeed, after meeting with President Madison and Secretary of State Monroe in October 1815, Gallatin initially wrote to both declining the mission, asserting that quote, every consideration connected with private prudence in regard to my family forbids my doing it. And considering the present depressed situation of France, no motive of public utility urges a contrary determination, even if, under other circumstances, my services could have been deemed useful at that court. Monroe wrote to Gallatin on December 4th and December 16th urging him to accept. It took a couple more months, but on February 2nd, 1816, Gallatin finally gave in and agreed to take up the post. He traveled to Washington in March to discuss his new mission with the administration, only to find President Madison ready to offer him his old position of Secretary of the Treasury. After careful consideration, Gallatin declined the offer due to a concern that he wouldn't be up to the challenge of managing what had become an even larger bureaucracy since his vacating the post a few years back. The Gallatins arrived in France in July 1816 to find a much different nation from the one that they had last encountered. By this point, Napoleon had been sent to what would prove to be his final exile on St. Helena, and King Louis Eighteenth had been firmly established on his throne. During his tenure in Paris, Gallatin would find himself in frustrating back and forth sessions with the French Prime Minister, the Duc de Richelieu, over American claims on the French related back to the days of Napoleon's empire, with Richelieu falling back on a common French diplomatic tactic of the time of avoiding the issue and protecting his interests and those of his nation. Gallatin had more success in the late summer, early fall of 1818, when U.S. Minister to Britain Richard Rush who requested Gallatin's assistance in negotiating a new trade deal with the British to replace the one that Gallatin had negotiated in 1815 and that was set to expire in 1819. On October 20, 1818, a new convention was signed in London which not only renewed the previous terms but also established the boundary between the U.S. and Canada west to the Rocky Mountains but avoided the issue of the boundary through the Rockies to the Pacific though it did establish joint ownership of that area known as the Oregon Country. Beyond just the endless negotiations with the French government with little to no results, Gallatin would also find himself at odds at one point with Secretary of State John Quincy Adams. In the summer of 1821, French officials on both sides of the Atlantic were demanding answers for the American seizure of the French ship Apollon on the St. Mary's River between Georgia in Spanish Florida. The French and Spanish governments insisted that the Apollon had been seized in Spanish waters, while the U.S. naturally insisted that the ship had been seized in American waters. Secretary Adams insisted that the seizure was justified due to the fact that, quote, the Spanish did such a poor job at enforcing peace on the border, and thus the Americans might as well do it themselves. Gallatin, however, did not agree with this view of the matter and put his own interpretation before French Foreign Minister Baron Pasquier when he was asked for an explanation. Further, he wrote Secretary Adams in essence chastising him for offering a quote untenable position, with Gallatin quote, suggesting that the United States could hardly assert a right to seize another country's ship where and when it pleased. Now, as you can imagine, Secretary Adams was none too pleased at this, and wrote in his diary later in the year that quote, Gallatin is a man of first-rate talents, conscious and vain of them, and mortified in his ambition, checked as it has been, after attaining the last step to the summit, timid in great perils, torturous in his paths, born in Europe, disguising and yet betraying a supercilious prejudice of European superiority of intellect and holding principles pliable to circumstances, occasionally mistaking the left for the right-handed wisdom. Basically, he dismissed Gallatin's viewpoint as being simultaneously from a place of jealousy at him having attained the position that Gallatin always wanted but would likely never hold, while at the same time being arrogant and considering himself better than Adams because he was European. Wow. In eighteen twenty two, Gallatin was offered the position of President of the Second Bank of the United States, but at least for the time being, he remained at his post in Paris and declined the offer. The frustration for Gallatin was building, however, and on november thirteenth, eighteen twenty two, after six years of getting nowhere in negotiating the claims against the French, Gallatin wrote to President Monroe Requesting permission to return home to the u s, he initially intended the visit to be only a temporary absence of about six months from Paris to manage some personal affairs back home, and this request was granted on june twenty third eighteen twenty three Gallatin and his family arrived in New York City where they visited with Hannah Gallatin's mother, Miss Nicholson. In July, Albert traveled to washington d c. with his son James to meet with administration officials. He also had unpleasant news for Secretary of State John Quincy Adams. Gallatin did not have the funds to return to France the following spring, as had been his plan, so he had to resign his post. Though Gallatin and his family returned to their home, Friendship Hill, in the latter part of 1823 to put their affairs in order, it wasn't long before Gallatin was being drawn back into politics again. William H. Crawford, who had preceded Gallatin as U.S. Minister to France, and eventually succeeded Gallatin as Secretary of the Treasury, was being put forward as a presidential candidate in the upcoming presidential election, and Gallatin was being eyed as a possible running mate for Crawford. Despite Crawford suffering a debilitating stroke in September 1823, his campaign went on with the assumption that he would eventually recover, and despite his awareness of Crawford's condition, Gallatin did not remove himself from consideration as his running mate. Thus, in February 1824, the House Democratic Republican caucus nominated Crawford as president and Gallatin as vice president. Gallatin did have his concerns, however, especially as the field grew ever larger. But, as he explained to a correspondent, Crawford's supporters felt quote, that my, i.e., Gallatin's name, would serve as a banner and show their nomination to be that of the old Republican party. I thought. And still think that they were mistaken, that as a foreigner, as residuary legatee of the Federalist hatred, and as one whose services were forgotten, and more recent ones, though more useful, but little known, my name would be of no service to the cause. Finally, a political operator in the Crawford camp who had come to play a large role in American history in a short amount of time, named Martin Van Buren convinced Gallatin to withdraw as Crawford's running mate in September 1824, as he thought that may help Crawford's political calculus. Long story short, it didn't, and John Quincy Adams would end up as the sixth U.S. president through a story far beyond our scope to discuss today. With this new president coming in, rumors popped up that Gallatin would be asked to be Secretary of State or Secretary of the Treasury. Offers came to him for neither post, and thus, He remained at his home, Friendship Hill, as a private citizen while a new administration began its work in Washington. As none of the Gallatins were truly happy in the rural setting of Friendship Hill, the homestead was put up for sale, and in October 1825, Albert and Hannah left it for the last time and rented a home in Baltimore, Maryland. Their sons, James and Albert Roaz, were left to sell Friendship Hill which took seven years before they found a buyer who offered $3,500 for it. With the sale taking so long, and with expenses in the city being more than out in the country, Gallatin struggled to keep his family supported financially, and he had to consider a multitude of offers coming his way. The Pennsylvania state government offered Gallatin a post as Commissioner of State Canals, but he declined the post as it would be a step down for him. In October 1825, President Adams offered him a position as a minister to the Inter-American Congress scheduled to meet in Panama. Though his official declination was, quote, on the somewhat tenuous excuse that his knowledge of Spanish and the Latin American countries and officials was insufficient, Gallatin sent a private message to Secretary of State Henry Clay that his family was reluctant to have him leave once more on an open-ended mission. Thus, the administration put on its thinking caps, and in the spring of 1826, President Adams and Secretary Clay put another offer before Gallatin. Would he be willing to go as a special minister to Britain to discuss the Oregon border, as well as a few other issues between the two nations? As this mission had a specific focus and would be for a limited time, Gallatin agreed. However, before he could be confirmed by the Senate, word arrived in Washington that the current U.S. minister to Britain was requesting to be recalled. Thus, Adams and Clay approached Gallatin once more. We know that we just asked you about a special mission, but as you were so great in the negotiations with the British before, would you consider being the permanent U.S. minister to Britain? Gallatin agreed. And on July 1, 1826, Albert, Hannah, and their daughter Frances departed from New York City, New York, bound for London, which they arrived at just over a month later. Unfortunately, the beginning of Gallatin's tenure in this diplomatic mission to Britain would start under adverse conditions. Just after Gallatin's arrival, the British government issued new orders in council, quote, interdicting intercourse in American vessels between the United States and British colonies in South America and the West Indies. As we've seen in the regular series, This hemispheric trade was key to American shipping, and so this posed a major threat to the mercantile interest in the US. Though Gallatin had achieved results with the British in the past, the London that he came to in eighteen twenty six was quite different from when he had last been there. As described by Duncan, quote, England was nearing the peak of its imperial power, and London was booming. Gallatin, meanwhile, was doubly a foreigner, an American with a French accent, with virtually no attachments to Britain, except his friend Alexander Baring, himself considered in Britain to be highly Americanized. Likewise, the task with which Gallatin had been set forward with by his government were, quote, arduous and complex issues that incited no real responsiveness from the British. Meanwhile, the government back home was not helping as the U.S. Congressional Committee issued a report in 1826, quote, staking claims to the Oregon country. You can imagine how the British felt about that. We must also at this point consider motivation on Gallatin's part. At this point, Albert was 65, his wife Hannah was about to turn 60, and they were separated from part of their family as they proceeded into their golden years. Gallatin wanted to wrap things up quickly, but in order to do so, he needed more leverage from his superiors back in Washington. In March 1827, President Adams provided just that in a letter to Gallatin that was both empathetic and empowering. In this letter, as described by Dungan, Adams, quote, gave Gallatin everything he needed. He had the ability to walk away from the negotiations with the endorsement, even the encouragement. Of the President of the United States. He had the ability to fall back on a crystal clear view of what the Senate would and would not ratify, a priceless bargaining tool. He knew that his President understood not only the difficulty of these negotiations, but the difficulty of any negotiation with the British in the current climate. Because he could now leave the room and leave the country with impunity, he had everything to play for and virtually no risk in doing so. Meanwhile, on the British side, there was a change in leadership and Gallatin used that to his advantage as he kept, quote, showing up and continuing the talks with whoever was on the other side of the table. On August 6th, 1827, Gallatin was able to conclude both a commercial convention restoring the conditions of previous agreements and a convention renewing the joint occupation of the Oregon country by the U.S. and Great Britain. It may not have seemed like much, but it restored Anglo-American relations for the time being and set the groundwork for a future agreement in just under two decades' time on the Oregon matter. On September twenty-ninth, eighteen 1827, Gallatin secured an agreement to refer the matter of the boundary between Canada and Maine to a third party arbiter. With this final agreement in place, Gallatin's mission was at an end, and he and his family were able to return home. They set off on October 8, 1827, and arrived in New York nearly two months later. This would prove to be Gallatin's final mission abroad for the United States, and the family would settle into lodgings in New York City, where they would remain for the rest of Albert's life though they would move around to a few lodgings in the course of that time. Subsequent year, 1828, the Adams administration asked Gallatin to prepare a case for the nation to where they felt the main Canada border lay to present for arbitration, and he spent a good portion of the year working on this. In the midst of this work, Andrew Jackson was elected as the new president, and so it would be to the new Secretary of State Martin Van Buren that Gallatin would present his report. His final report, sent in and printed at the end of 1829, would be Gallatin's last public service for the nation. Gallatin's family would see numerous points of celebration in the next few years as his daughter Frances was wed in 1830 and his son Albert Rolas was married in 1837. Gallatin threw himself into New York society and was heavily involved in the founding of New York University an institution which he served formally as the first president of the university's council starting in late 1830. Due to his concerns about how the university came together in its formative years, however, Gallatin resigned his position nearly a year later. Gallatin accepted an offer from his friend John Jacob Astor to become the president of the National Bank of New York, though he only earned $2,000 a year in this position. The former Secretary of the Treasury decided to get involved in one of the more hotly contested political debates of the time when he was invited by the editor of the American Quarterly Review in April, 1830 to write an article on finance and currency. Gallatin did not work in a vacuum on this and carried on an extensive correspondence with the President of the Bank of the United States, Nicholas Biddle, about this article, with Biddle providing Gallatin with, quote, a mass of information and Biddle dispatched his own nephew to act as Gallatin's research assistant on the project. For months, Gallatin worked on this project, and finally, in December 1830, his article, which took up 87 pages, was published. This was reprinted in February 1831, and the final version, titled Considerations on the Currency and Banking System of the United States was 111 pages long and included tables which were used to, quote, recommend a system not dissimilar to that of France, with gold and silver coins circulating as currency in fixed ratios, and a single national bank responsible for the issue of paper currency and open market operations on behalf of the U.S. Treasury. Anyone who is familiar with this period of American history knows that President Andrew Jackson was railing against the Bank of the United States and would ultimately succeed in shutting it down when its charter came up for renewal. That, however, is a story for another day. In September 1831, Gallatin participated in a convention of free trade advocates and worked on a committee which drafted a memorial to send to Congress in support of free trade. In late 1832, Gallatin returned to an interest of his earlier in life studying, the ethnology and linguistics of the native peoples of North America. This ultimately resulted in a 422-page report published in 1836 titled, A Synopsis of the Indian Tribes Within the United States East of the Rocky Mountains and in the British and Russian Possessions of North America. For his first work on the subject, it was well-received by American and European ethnologists at the time. As if he didn't have enough to occupy his time with all the projects we've already discussed, in 1840, he published a paper entitled The Right of the United States of America to the Northeastern Boundary Claimed by Them, principally extracted from statements laid before the King of the Netherlands. Ultimately, it would be Gallatin's old friend, Alexander Baring at that point dubbed Lord Ashburton, who would travel to the U.S. in 1842 and negotiate the Webster-Ashburton Treaty, which would resolve numerous border issues between the U.S. and Canada in the eastern portion of the continent. In October 1842, Gallatin joined the New York Historical Society, and a month later, in November, he helped found the American Ethnological Society and served as its first president. He would soon be elected president of the New York Historical Society as well in February 1843, just a few months after joining. As had happened for the past couple of decades, rumors started up in late 1843 that Gallatin would be asked to serve as Secretary of the Treasury once more, but Gallatin himself dismissed these rumors as quote-unquote insanity. Gallatin would get involved in yet another political debate of the day in April 1844 when he presided over a meeting staged to protest the idea of annexing Texas to the U.S. Gallatin's speech at this meeting was reported in the press, and a few years later in 1847, after the annexation happened and the U.S. found itself at war with Mexico, he had an essay published entitled, Peace with Mexico. Ninety thousand copies were distributed around the nation. He followed this up with another piece in 1848 entitled War Expenses. Gallatin also completed a three hundred page work entitled Notes on the Semi Civilized Nations of Mexico, Yucatan, and Central America in 1845, which was published the subsequent year. In 1848, he completed an essay entitled Hales Indians of Northwest America and Vocabularies of North America with an introduction, which was also published. After a lengthy career with various triumphs in numerous fields, the sands of time started to run out for Gallatin. He was preceded in death in 1848 by his former colleagues John Quincy Adams, John Jacob Astor, and Lord Ashburton. But he suffered his greatest loss the following spring, when his wife Hannah passed away. By the end of 1848, Gallatin would be for the most part confined to his room and after the death of Hannah, his condition continued to worsen until finally, on August 12, 1849, he passed away in the arms of his daughter Frances. Gallatin would be buried in the graveyard of Trinity Church in Lower Manhattan, the same graveyard where his predecessor at Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, is buried, along with numerous other notable dignitaries. We could spend hours going through all the schools, academic buildings, counties, towns, roads, and even bridges named after Gallatin. I do have to add in a personal note though, one of the roads is Gallatin Street in Jackson, Mississippi, which is where I went to college and lived before moving to North Carolina. This naming flurry wasn't restricted to the U.S., however, as there is an Avenue de Gallatin in the city of his birth, Geneva. There are a few other distinctive honors. It's only fitting to have the Secretary of the Treasury depicted on currency, and Gallatin was featured on the $500 U.S. note issued in 1862 and 1863. His portrait was one also included in the Prominent Americans postage stamp series that was issued from 1967 to 1973. There have been three U.S. revenue cutters named after Gallatin. The first was launched in around 1815 or 1816 and was in service only a short time until around 1824. Another USRC, Albert Gallatin, was launched in 1830 and served for 10 years before being transferred to the Coast Survey in 1840. The Gallatin was then reinstated in the Revenue Marine Service in 1848 for less than a year before being returned to the Coast Survey. I didn't find any mention of its final fate. The last to be named after him was built in 1871, and unfortunately the ship was lost a couple of decades later when it sank off the coast of Cape Ann, Massachusetts in 1892. In addition, two U.S. Coast Guard ships have been named after Gallatin. The first was launched around 1925 or 1926 and remained in service for around 10 years until 1935. The second is more recent and was launched in 1967 and commissioned the following year. It served for decades, only being decommissioned in 2014, at which time it was sold to the government of Nigeria, who recommissioned it as the Okpabana in 2017. It is still in service in the Nigerian Navy to this day. Gallatin's home, Friendship Hill, was designated as a National Historic Landmark in 1965 and was one of the first buildings to be listed on the National Register of Historic Places when the register was created in 1966. At that point, it was still privately owned, but in 1978, it was established as a National Historic Site and is administered today by the National Park Service. Gallatin is also remembered at the Treasury Department by a bronze statue in front of the Treasury Building, which was dedicated in 1947. The inscription on the statue reads, Albert Gallatin, Secretary of the Treasury, Genius of Finance, Senator and Representative, Commissioner for the Treaty of Ghent, Minister to France and Great Britain, and steadfast champion of democracy, seventeen sixty one to eighteen forty nine, and that Andy is the life and career of Albert Gallatin. So, first thoughts thus far:
1: should have made a musical about this guy, man. Like, <laughs> when it comes to U.S. Treasury secretaries, this guy, I think he is uh, much more interesting than the one who had a musical made about him. Not gonna lie. Um, I also think that honestly, he kind of gels better with some of the themes of that musical regarding immigration and growing up as a foreigner and that Gallatin truly was a foreigner. He wasn't from another part of the British empire and then moved, you know, to another part of the British empire as part of the uh, dominant Anglo ethnicity within that empire. No, he was from a completely different country. He's from Switzerland. So. I don't know, I, I just thought that, that was really interesting. I, you know, uh, I never knew that there was, I mean, I figured that there was one, but I never knew that there was a uh, sort of a democratic Republican answer to the treasury secretary position.
0: Absolutely. Who proved,
1: you know, just as financially competent and even excellent. So that's very interesting to hear about.
0: Absolutely. And, and as folks have studied Gallatin over the years, there is of course this inevitable comparison between Hamilton and Gallatin. And to your point, Andy, in some ways, Gallatin was more successful than Hamilton ever was. And he still draws on those, some of those same themes, some of those same things that, when you think of Hamilton, you know, come up. But at the same time, you know, Gallatin, in some ways, took it to a whole new level. And the fact that his career lasted for so long, you know, constantly, you know, one, diplomatic post after another. I mean it's just it's really fascinating. And you know, I think we're already kind of talking through our first round, which is the whole picture. And this round looks at the overall character and career of the cabinet member. And so for this category, we can each give Gallatin up to 10 points. So Andy, what do you think about Gallatin's whole career and character?
1: His whole career. I think that it was it was very interesting learning about him. You know, it's always hard to rate human beings with numbers, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I was shocked at, uh, I think maybe the most impressive thing about Gallatin in terms of his career was how successful he was despite all of the things occurring around him. You know, all of this success that was going on in his life was occurring as he was experiencing, you know, family tragedies and, uh, you know, immense uh, greater macro-political Uh, disputes within the country, you know, this was not a good time to be a member of the American bureaucracy. And, you know, despite those struggles, and of course, despite the personal baggage that was occurring at the same time, he managed to carve out a very successful career. So uh, in terms of that success, I, what are we rating him on here out of 10 or? Out of 10. Um looking at it from a strictly careers perspective, I think I'd have to give it a 9.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing like you know, just the fact that he was able to achieve so much in so many and there are so many points in his career that things could have gone awry, you know, with his you know, his election to the Senate and that being thrown out. And him having all this opposition to him even becoming Secretary of the Treasury in the first place and ending up having the lengthiest tenure of any Treasury Secretary to date, he was a survivor. And then even beyond that, you know, he, he was kind of thrown out as Secretary of the Treasury through this, you know, other means and he still kept on getting these and getting invitations to serve the public again. He is one of the ultimate survivors. You know, I think that there are some, some points, you know, to think of in terms of he wasn't always acting as in his own best interest and especially with his antagonism of the Smiths. And so I'll go ahead and I think I'm going to match you on the nine here. You know, I don't think you get much better than Gallatin, though, in terms of this is a pretty successful career.
1: Yes. And uh, it, it's also like you said, it's a successful career, uh, despite the fact that Gallatin had never I'll know about you. I never really got the impression that he was incredibly ambitious.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: it always seemed like uh, he was sort of the ideal uh cincinnatus type person you know the uh the reluctant statesman right
0: exactly
1: at least that's the impression i got is that it seemed like uh he was always kind of getting forced back into the government if that makes sense right
0: exactly
1: which you know i I mean i know that oftentimes uh, the people who claim that they are oh so reluctantly taking power there's often some mistruth to that but it, it seemed to be pretty genuine in this case uh in that gallatin you know had other options that were perhaps better for him available in several points outside of public service, but that he continued to be called back because, you know, other members of the government and the public just wanted him back there so badly. He's sort of irreplaceable figure in
0: that sense. Exactly. Well, and speaking of that, let's zoom in on his time in the cabinet. So in our go get around, this round looks at the impact of the cabinet member during their time in the cabinet. So this is really focused on his tenure as secretary of the treasury. And just like with the last round, we can award up to ten points maximum each. So what do you think about his impact in the cabinet?
1: In the cabinet, I think that again, you need to give him a high score mm-hmm. because while he was in the cabinet, um you said that he played a major role in ensuring that the Louisiana Purchase happened, which is just such a monumentous event in American history. additionally his uh his oversight of several other major events and in in a challenging time uh to be a member of the cabinet of course Mm -hmm. i mean it's never easy but certainly this has to be one of the hardest times to be a member of the early american bureaucracy right i mean of course he was never able to fully achieve his goals so i can't give him too high of a score like you said he was never quite able to get i I believe you mentioned he was never quite able to get the debt down to a point where he was satisfied with it right
0: Mm -hmm. exactly
1: so i'd give him like a seven there simply because he wasn't quite able to achieve all of his goals. I mean, a seven is still a good score.
0: Oh yeah. So, and I'm actually going to go a little higher. I'm going to give him a nine in this one as well. And it's just because, you know, well, actually I'm going to take it down to an eight because you do have, I think one key thing with Gallatin, like throughout this extensive career, He was seen as being one of, if not the key advisors to the presidents and for better or worse, you know, there are certain times that, and especially when you get to the Madison presidency, that Madison may have been better suited to trust other advisors. And I I think once James Monroe was in, and we'll learn more about this in the narrative series of presidencies, I think once Monroe got into place, I think he probably served Madison a bit better in this key advisory role but he was still seen as this key figure and even you know whenever he thought of leaving you know you had Jefferson you had Madison say no we need you we need you in place you know to to be able to command that respect of the president and of two presidents is pretty remarkable and and his impact in the cabinet was pretty well felt to that end. There were also a couple of places that he didn't get his way and it ultimately, and especially like the embargo act, if he had been able to convince Jefferson not to push for that, the Jefferson presidency would have ended on a much higher note than it did. And also the fact that some of the things, you know, he, he, also struggled in some some ways you know some of the things that he put forward didn't work out so well he had challenges and especially towards the end so got to take him down a little bit but to me i think i think that's probably an eight is probably a good measure of his overall impact in the cabinet but now we must consider in our hot seat round, any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the cabinet member. Now, this disgrace does not have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet. And with this, instead of awarding points, we'll be taking away points. And we can take away up to 10 points here. So Andy, any disgraceful behavior that we need to discuss with Gallatin? Disgraceful might
1: be a bit harsh of a word but I think that his running beef with the Smiths was certainly not ideal I'd probably only take one point off for it just because I I wouldn't call it anywhere near disgraceful but I I would say that it it certainly is a a bit of a mark on his career and that it didn't allow him to uh you know it sort of allowed personal beef to get in the way of achieving some more important goals
0: Exactly. And I agree with you there. I'm going to match your negative one just because, you know, it created so much chaos for the administration. You know, there were already kind of growing factions within the Democratic Republican Party that were forming. But the fact that he actively tried to attack the Smiths, it worked to the detriment of the administration, to the administration's aims. And so I think that we do need to account for that. But Gallatin is one of those figures. And again, like I've tried to research him as extensively as possible, have consulted numerous sources and you just, overall, you just get that he is this dedicated public servant. He's this guy who's just trying to do the right thing. Isn't, you know, he's not like, Oh, well I want to be president. His greatest ambition And something he didn't achieve was becoming Secretary of State. But that's really the only time that you get Gallatin saying, oh, well, I really want this. For the most part, it's, you know, I'm just going to serve and serve to the best of my ability. And so you really don't get a lot of disgrace with Gallatin. But I think that accounting for that running back and forth with the Smiths, I think that that is important to count here.
1: I guess you could say that his uh his uh issues with the native population of Vir- you said that was that in Virginia or Pennsylvania at that
0: point. So that yeah that was um back in Pennsylvania.
1: Yes. Uh, I I suppose you could uh I'm not I, I'm going to keep it at negative 1 just because that was so early in his career and sadly that was just so normative for the time. Yeah. But that is something to take into account. Actually now that I think about it even though it's normative for the time encroaching on other people's land is a uh, pretty uncool. So I'm going to bump it down to negative two. All right. Cause I, yeah, I hadn't really taken that into account when I first thought of it as negative one, but you did say that this is before, including before and after their, uh, before their term of office. So
0: exactly. Well, and, and that's one thing, you know, that we've discussed with other episodes, you know, it's, it's hard to quantify. I mean, it was a decimation of peoples of entire nations and though gallatin you know we don't get the sense and and i never i didn't find any anything in the research that really suggests that you know he was all gung-ho for it he was still he was still part of this this is important to account for because in this westward push it wasn't just oh well we're settling on land that was unclaimed It was claimed by people who lived there for generations, in some cases, and so that I think that is important to take into account. I I think I'm going to do a negative 1.5 here. I don't want to take off too many points just because it we don't get a sense that he was, you know, too active in these efforts. But I think that we do need to account for his moving to these western lands. His Establishment at Friendship Hill. This was part of a larger push of decimating native cultures and nations. So I think that is important to account for. So thank you so much for bringing that up. And so, with that, so that's a negative 3.5 from the hot seat round. And so, right now, Gallatin is at 29.5, which is pretty good. You know, that's definitely one of the higher ones that we've had thus far. And he's about to earn some more points because next up is tenure of office. And this looks at the entire time that a cabinet member served in a full-time capacity. And so Gallatin, you know, having served, so he started on May 14th, 1801, and he officially left office on February 8th, 1814. So with those dates in mind, that is nearly 13 years. So we're going to round up to 13. So he gets an additional 13 points here. Now, we do have some bonus points that folks can pick up. One of these will be applicable to Gallatin. Um, He doesn't earn the bonus point for serving in more than one full-time cabinet position because even though he tried to make that move to Secretary of State, he didn't get there. So he doesn't get that point. He does, however, earn a bonus point because he served as a full-time cabinet member in more than one presidential administration. He also did not become president, so he doesn't earn the final bonus point, but he does pick up one of the three. And so that puts Gallatin at a grand total of 43.5 points. So that is quite high on the table. You know, he is definitely one of our, our highest vote getters thus far. And actually, I think that, yes, he actually is now number one. Wow. But with that, we still have one more question to ask. Andy, after all I've shared about Gallatin's life and career and what we've discussed, do you think that he is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the Cabinet All-Stars?
1: I think he could be on currency Uh, You know, maybe not a, uh, you know, mainstream dollar bill, but, you know, maybe on like a commemorative quarter or something like that. But uh, I certainly think that he's an important enough figure to be in. I mean, depending on how we define all stars, certainly he is among the more important figures within the history of the cabinet. So I'd say he certainly demands a seat at that table.
0: And I wholeheartedly agree with you here. You know, Albert Gallatin, even though... More folks don 't know him. He was a pivotal figure for decades in u s political history. you know when he became the the floor leader in the House, he served in this role he was a, a key leader in the democratic Republican party. He helped them to put together their financial policy and then moving into this role in as Secretary of State, he had a prominent role for decades in history and so you know if Gallatin hasn't earned a seat at this table I don't know who has so I completely agree with you on that and so congratulations Albert Gallatin you have earned a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars
1: I'm sure he is very happy right now in his grave in New York well well probably not if he could see where. We ended up, you know, given his views on national debt and military expenditure, I'm sure that he'd have much bigger concerns. But maybe, you know, this would be a nice little, uh, you know, he'd be like, oh, well, at least I got a seat at the podcast
0: table, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think, I think that he would have some strong opinions about where we are in our national fiscal policy. It's definitely it did not end up as Gallatin would have wished, but he also was very impactful. And I think that there is still that, that thread of fiscal responsibility and paying down the debt that continues in the political landscape to the present day. And Gallatin's role in that is something to be acknowledged. So, but with that, we are at the end of our episode and Andy, thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate your insights and perspectives and I hope that this has been a good experience learning about, you know, somebody who you may not have heard of before, but hopefully you've enjoyed this experience learning about Gallatin.
1: Yeah, it was pretty sweet. Uh, you know, once I heard he was from Geneva, I was like, this dude's got to be good because, you know, Geneva's a city that has a pretty long list of intellectual all-stars coming from it. So
0: absolutely. And for the audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure, once you get done with this episode, check out the History of Africa podcast. Believe me, you want to, if you haven't listened yet, this is a podcast you want to listen to. So be sure to check that out. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. And until next time, stay safe and healthy. Be kind to one another. And take care, dear friends.